chapter 8, the ministry of John. The Apostle John passed his early life in the society of the uncultivated fishermen of Galilee. He did not enjoy the training of the schools, but by association with Christ, the great teacher, he obtained the highest education which mortal man can receive. He drank eagerly at the fountain of wisdom and then sought to lead others to that well of water springing up into everlasting life. The simplicity of his words, the sublime power of the truths he uttered, and the spiritual fervor that characterized his teachings gave him access to all classes. Yet even believers were unable to fully comprehend the sacred mysteries of divine truth unfolded in his discourses. He seemed to be constantly imbued with the Holy Spirit. He sought to bring the thoughts of the people up to grasp the unseen. The wisdom with which he spoke caused his words to drop as the dew, softening and subduing the soul. After the ascension of Christ, John stands forth a faithful, ardent laborer for the Master. With others, he enjoyed the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and with fresh zeal and power, he continued to speak to the people the words of life. He was threatened with imprisonment and death, but he would not be intimidated. Multitudes of all classes come out to listen to the preaching of the apostles and are healed of their diseases through the name of Jesus, that name so hated among the Jews. The priests and rulers are frantic in their opposition as they see that the sick are healed and Jesus is exalted as a prince of life. They fear that soon the whole world will believe on him and then accuse them of murdering the mighty healer. But the greater their efforts to stop this excitement, the more believe on him and turn from the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. They are filled with indignation and laying hands on Peter and John, thrust them into the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opens the prison doors, brings them forth and says, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. With fidelity and earnestness, John bore testimony for his Lord upon every suitable occasion. He saw that the times were full of peril for the church. Satanic delusions were existing everywhere. The minds of the people were wandering through the mazes of the skepticism and deceptive doctrines. Some who pretended to be true to the cause of God were deceivers. They denied Christ and his gospel and were bringing in damnable heresies and living in transgression of the divine law. John's favorite theme. John's favorite theme was the infinite love of Christ. He believed in God as a child believes in a kind and tender father. He understood the character and work of Jesus, and when he saw his Jewish brethren groping their way without a ray of the Son of Righteousness to illuminate their path, he longed to present to them Christ, the light of the world. The faithful apostles saw their blindness, their pride, superstition, and ignorance of the Scriptures were riveting upon their soul's fetters, which would never be broken. The prejudice and hatred against Christ, which they obstinately cherished, was bringing ruin upon them as a nation and destroying their hopes of everlasting life. 
but John continued to present Christ to them as the only way of salvation. The evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah was so clear that John declares no man needs to walk in the darkness of error while such light is proffered him. Saddened by poisonous errors, John lived to see the gospel of Christ preached far and near, and thousands eagerly accepted its teachings. But he was filled with sadness as he perceived poisonous errors creeping into the church. Some who accepted Christ claimed that his love released them from obedience to the law of God. On the other hand, many taught that the letter of the law should be kept, also all the Jewish customs and ceremonies, and that this was sufficient for salvation without the blood of Christ. They held that Christ was a good man like the apostles, but denied his divinity. John saw the dangers to which the church would be exposed should they receive these ideas, and he met them with promptness and decision. He wrote to a most honorable helper in the gospel, a lady of good repute and extensive influence. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. John was not to prosecute his work without great hindrances. Satan was not idle. He instigated evil men to cut short the useful life of this man of God. But holy angels protected him from their assaults. John must stand as a faithful witness for Christ. The church in its peril needed his testimony. By misrepresentation and falsehood, the emissaries of Satan had sought to stir up opposition against John and against the doctrine of Christ. In consequence, dissensions and heresies were imperiling the church. John met these errors unflinchingly. He hedged up the way of the adversaries of truth. He wrote and exhorted that the leaders in these heresies should not have the least encouragement. There are at the present day evils similar to those that threatened the prosperity of the early church, and the teachings of the apostle upon these points should be carefully heeded. You must have charity as the cry to be heard everywhere, especially from those who profess sanctification. But charity is too pure to cover an unconfessed sin. John's teachings are important for those who are living amid the perils of the last days. He had been intimately associated with Christ. He had listened to his teachings and had witnessed his mighty miracles. He bore a convincing testimony which made the falsehoods of his enemies of none effect. No compromise with sin. John enjoyed the blessing of true sanctification. But Mark, the apostle, does not claim to be sinless. He is seeking perfection by walking in the light of God's countenance. 
he testifies that the man who professes to know God and yet breaks the divine law gives a lie to his profession. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In this age of boasted liberality, those words would be branded as bigotry. But the apostle teaches that while we should manifest Christian courtesy, we are authorized to call sin and sinners by their right names, that this is consistent with true charity. While we are to love the souls for whom Christ died and labor for their salvation, we should not make a compromise with sin. We are not to unite with the rebellion and call this charity. God requires his people in this age of the world to stand, as did John in his time, unflinchingly for the right in opposition to soul-destroying errors. No sanctification without obedience. I have met many who claim to live without sin, but when tested by God's word, these persons were found to be open transgressors of his holy law. The clearest evidences of the perpetuity and binding force of the fourth commandment failed to arouse a conscience. They could not deny the claims of God, but ventured to excuse themselves in breaking the Sabbath. They claimed to be sanctified and to serve God on all days of the week. Many good people, they said, did not keep the Sabbath. If men were sanctified, no condemnation would rest upon them if they did not observe it. God was too merciful to punish them for not keeping the seventh day. They would be counted singular in the community should they observe the Sabbath and would have no influence in the world, and they must be subject to the powers that be. A lady in New Hampshire bore her testimony in a public meeting that the grace of God was ruling in her heart and that she was holy the Lord's. She then expressed her belief that this people were doing much good in arousing sinners to see their danger. She said the Sabbath that this people present to us is the only Sabbath of the Bible and then stated that her mind had been very much exercised upon the subject. She saw great trials before her, which she must meet if she kept the seventh day. The next day she came to meeting and again bore her testimony, saying that she had asked the Lord if she must keep the Sabbath, and he had told her she need not keep it. Her mind was now at rest upon that subject. She then gave a most stirring exhortation for all to come to the perfect love of Jesus where there was no condemnation to the soul. This woman did not possess genuine sanctification. It was not God who told her that she could be sanctified while living in disobedience to one of his plain commandments. God's law is sacred and none can transgress it with impunity. The one who told her that she could continue to break God's law and be sinless was the prince of the powers of darkness, the same who told Eve in Eden through the serpent, Thou shalt not surely die. Eve flattered herself that God was too kind to punish her for disobedience of his express commands. The same sophistry is urged by thousands in excuse of their disobedience of the fourth commandment. Those who have the mind of Christ will keep all of God's commandments, irrespective of circumstances. The majesty of heaven says, I have kept my Father's commandments. Adam and Eve dared to transgress the Lord's requirements, 
and the terrible result of their sin should be a warning to us not to follow their example of disobedience. Christ prayed for his disciples in these words, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. There is no genuine sanctification except through obedience to the truth. Those who love God with all the heart will love all his commandments also. The sanctified heart is in harmony with the precepts of God's law, for they are holy, just, and good. God has not changed. God's character has not changed. He is the same jealous God today as when he gave his law from Sinai and wrote it with his own finger on the tables of stone. Those who trample upon God's holy law may say, I am sanctified, but to be indeed sanctified and to claim sanctification are two different things. The New Testament has not changed the law of God. The sacredness of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is as firmly established as the throne of Jehovah. John writes, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth the law, hath not seen him, neither known him. We are authorized to hold in the same estimation as did the beloved disciple, those who claim to abide in Christ, to be sanctified while living in transgression of God's law. He met with just such a class as we have to meet. He said, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Here the apostle speaks in plain terms as he deemed the subject demanded. The epistles of John breathe a spirit of love, but when he comes in contact with that class who break the law of God and yet claim that they are living without sin, he does not hesitate to warn them of their fearful deception. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 9 John in Exile The wonderful success which attended the preaching of the gospel by the apostles and their fellow laborers increased the hatred of the enemies of Christ. They made every effort to hinder its progress and finally succeeded in enlisting the power of the Roman emperor against the Christians. A terrible persecution ensued in which many of the followers of Christ were put to death. The Apostle John was now an aged man, but with great zeal and success he continued to preach the doctrine of Christ. He had a testimony of power which his adversaries could not controvert and which greatly encouraged his brethren. 
when the faith of the Christian would seem to waver under the fierce opposition they were forced to meet, the apostle would repeat with great dignity, power, and eloquence that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The bitterest hatred was kindled against John for his unwavering fidelity to the cause of Christ. He was the last survivor of the disciples who were intimately connected with Jesus, and his enemies decided that his testimony must be silenced. If this could be accomplished, they thought the doctrine of Christ would not spread, and if treated with severity, it might soon die out of the world. John was accordingly summoned to Rome to be tried for his faith. His doctrines were misstated. False witnesses accused him as a seditious person, publicly teaching theories which would subvert the nation. The apostle presented his faith in a clear and convincing manner with such simplicity and candor that his words had a powerful effect. His hearers were astonished at his wisdom and eloquence, but the more convincing his testimony, the deeper the hatred of those who opposed the truth. The emperor was filled with rage and blasphemed the name of God and of Christ. He could not controvert the apostles' reasoning or match the power which attended the utterance of truth, and he determined to silence its faithful advocate. God's witness not silenced. Here we see how hard the heart may become when obstinately set against the purposes of God. The foes of the church were determined to maintain their pride and power before the people. By the emperor's decree, John was banished to the Isle of Patmos, condemned, as he tells us, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But the enemies of Christ utterly failed in their purpose to silence his faithful witness. From this place of exile comes the apostle's voice, reaching even to the end of time, proclaiming the most thrilling truths ever presented to mortals. Patmos, a barren rocky island in the Aegean Sea, had been chosen by the Roman government as a place of banishment for criminals. But to the servant of God, this gloomy abode proved to be the gate of heaven. He was shut away from the busy scenes of life and from active labor as an evangelist, but he was not excluded from the presence of God. In his desolate home, he could commune with the king of kings and study more closely the manifestations of divine power in the book of nature and the pages of inspiration. He delighted to meditate upon the great work of creation and to adore the power of the divine architect. In former years, his eyes had been greeted with the sight of wood-covered hills, green valleys, and fruitful plains, and in all the beauties of nature he had delighted to trace the wisdom and skill of the Creator. He was now surrounded with scenes that to many would appear gloomy and uninteresting, but to John it was otherwise. He could read the most important lessons in the wild, desolate rocks, the mysteries of the great deep, and the glories of the firmament. To him all bore the impress of God's power and declared his glory. 
the voice of nature, the apostle beheld around him the witnesses of the flood, which deluged the earth because the inhabitants ventured to transgress the law of God. The rocks thrown up from the great deep and from the earth by the breaking forth of the waters brought vividly to his mind the terrors of that awful outpouring of God's wrath. But while all that surrounded him below appeared desolate and barren, the blue heavens that bent above the apostle on lonely Patmos were as bright and beautiful as the skies above his own loved Jerusalem. Let man once look upon the glory of the heavens in the night season and mark the work of God's power in the host thereof, and he is taught a lesson of the greatness of the Creator in contrast with his own littleness. If he has cherished pride and self-importance because of wealth or talents or personal attractions, let him go out in the beautiful night and look upon the starry heavens and learn to humble his proud spirit in the presence of the Infinite One. In the voice of many waters, deep calling unto deep, the prophet heard the voice of the Creator. The sea, lashed to fury by the merciless winds, represented to him the wrath of an offended God. The mighty waves in their most terrible commotion, restrained within the limits appointed by an invisible hand, spoke to John of an infinite power controlling the deep, and in contrast he saw and felt the folly of feeble mortals, but worms of the dust, who glory in their wisdom and strength, and set their hearts against the ruler of the universe, as though God were altogether such a one as themselves. How blind and senseless is human pride! One hour of God's blessing in the sunshine and rain upon the earth will do more to change the face of nature than man, with all his boasted knowledge and persevering efforts, can accomplish during a lifetime. In the surroundings of his island home, the exiled prophet read the manifestations of divine power, and all the works of nature held communion with his God. The most ardent longing of the soul after God, the most fervent prayers, went up to heaven from rocky Patmos. As John looked upon the rocks, he was reminded of Christ, the rock of his strength, in whose shelter he could hide without a fear. A Sabbath Keeper The Lord's Day mentioned by John was the Sabbath, the day on which Jehovah rested after the great work of creation and which he blessed and sanctified because he had rested upon it. The Sabbath was as sacredly observed by John upon the Isle of Patmos as when he was among the people preaching upon that day. By the barren rocks surrounding him, John was reminded of rocky Horeb and how when God spoke his law to the people there, he said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Son of God spoke to Moses from the mountaintop. God made the rocks his sanctuary. His temple was the everlasting hills. The divine legislator descended upon the rocky mountain to speak his law in the hearing of all the people, that they might be impressed by the grand and awful exhibition of his power and glory, and fear to transgress his commandments. God spoke his law amid thunders and lightnings in the thick cloud upon the top of the mountain, and his voice was as the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud. 
the law of Jehovah was unchangeable, and the tablets upon which he wrote that law were solid rock, signifying the immutability of his precepts. Rocky Horeb became a sacred place to all who loved and revered the law of God. Shut in with God. While John was contemplating the scenes of Horeb, the spirit of him who sanctified the seventh day came upon him. He contemplated the sin of Adam in transgressing the divine law and the fearful result of that transgression, the infinite love of God in giving his son to redeem a lost race seemed too great for language to express. As he presents it in his epistle, he calls upon the church and the world to behold it. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. It was a mystery to John that God could give his son to die for a rebellious man and he was lost in amazement that the plan of salvation devised at such a cost to heaven should be refused by those for whom the infinite sacrifice had been made. John was shut in with God. As he learned more of the divine character through the works of creation, his reverence for God increased. He often asked himself, why do not men who are wholly dependent upon God seek to be at peace with him by willing obedience? He is infinite in wisdom, and there is no limit to his power. He controls the heavens with their numberless worlds. He preserves in perfect harmony the grandeur and beauty of the things which he has created. Sin is the transgression of God's law, and the penalty of sin is death. There would have been no discord in heaven or in the earth if sin had never entered. Disobedience to God's law has brought all the misery that has existed among his creatures. Why will not men be reconciled to God? It is no light matter to sin against God, to set the perverse will of man in opposition to the will of his maker. It is for the best interest of men, even in this world, to obey God's commandments and it is surely for their eternal interest to submit to God and be at peace with him. The beasts of the field obey their creator's law in the instinct that governs them. He speaks to the proud ocean, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and the waters are prompt to obey his word. The planets are marshaled in perfect order, obeying the laws which God has established. Of all the creatures that God has made upon the earth, man alone is rebellious, yet he possesses reasoning powers to understand the claims of the divine law and a conscience to feel the guilt of transgression and the peace and joy of obedience. God made him a free moral agent to obey or disobey. The reward of everlasting life and eternal weight of glory is promised to those who do God's will, while the threatenings of his wrath hang over all who defy his law. The majesty of God, as John meditated upon the glory of God displayed in his works, he was overwhelmed with the greatness and majesty of the Creator. Should all the inhabitants of this little world refuse obedience to God, he would not be left without glory. 
He could sweep every mortal from the face of the earth in a moment and create a new race to people it and glorify his name. God is not dependent on man for honor. He could marshal the starry hosts of heaven, the millions of worlds above, to raise a song of honor and praise and glory to their Creator. The heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. A view of Christ. John calls to remembrance the wonderful incidents that he has witnessed in the life of Christ. In imagination, he again enjoys the precious opportunities with which he was once favored and is greatly comforted. Suddenly his meditation is broken in upon. He is addressed in tones distinct and clear. He turns to see from whence the voice proceeds, and lo, he beholds his Lord, whom he has loved, with whom he has walked and talked, and whose sufferings upon the cross he has witnessed. But how changed is the Savior's appearance. He is no longer a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bears no marks of his humiliation. His eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if it glows in a furnace. The tones of his voice are like the musical sound of many waters. His countenance shines like the sun in its meridian glory. In his hand are seven stars, representing the ministers of the churches. Out of his mouth issues a sharp two-edged sword, an emblem of the power of his word. John, who has so loved his Lord and who has steadfastly adhered to the truth in face of imprisonment, stripes, and threatened death, cannot endure the excellent glory of Christ's presence and falls to the earth as one stricken dead. Jesus then lays his hand upon the prostrate form of his servant, saying, Fear not, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. John was strengthened to live in the presence of his glorified Lord, and then were presented before him in holy vision the purposes of God for future ages. The glorious attractions of the heavenly home were made known to him. He was permitted to look upon the throne of God and to behold the white-robed throng of redeemed ones. He heard the music of heavenly angels and the songs of triumph from those who had overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. John's Humility To the beloved disciple were granted such exalted privileges as to have rarely been vouchsafed in mortals. Yet so closely had he become assimilated to the character of Christ that pride found no place in his heart. His humility did not consist in a mere profession. It was a grace that clothed him as naturally as a garment. He ever sought to conceal his own righteous acts and to avoid everything that would seem to attract attention to himself. In his gospel, John mentions a disciple whom Jesus loved but conceals the fact that the one thus honored was himself. 
His course was devoid of selfishness. In his daily life, he taught and practiced charity in the fullest sense. He had a high sense of the love that should exist among natural brothers and Christian brethren. He presents and urges his love as an essential characteristic of the followers of Jesus. Destitute of this, all pretensions to the Christian name are vain. John was a teacher of practical holiness. He presents unerring rules for the conduct of Christians. They must be pure in heart and correct in manners. In no case should they be satisfied with an empty profession. He declares in unmistakable terms that to be a Christian is to be Christ-like. The life of John was one of earnest effort to conform to the will of God. The apostle followed his Savior so closely and had such a sense of the purity and exalted holiness of Christ that his own character appeared in contrast exceedingly defective. And when Jesus in his glorified body appeared to John, one glimpse was enough to cause him to fall down as one dead. Such will ever be the feelings of those who know best their Lord and Master. The more closely they contemplate the life and character of Jesus, the more deeply will they feel their own sinfulness, and the less will they be disposed to claim holiness of heart or to boast of their sanctification. Chapter 10, Christian Character. The character of the Christian is shown by his daily life, said Christ. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Our Savior compares himself to a vine of which his followers are the branches. He plainly declares that all who would be his disciples must bring forth fruit, and then he shows how they may become fruitful branches. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. The Apostle Paul describes the fruit which the Christian is to bear. He says that it is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These precious graces are but the principles of God's law carried out in the life. The law of God is the only true standard of moral perfection. That law was practically exemplified in the life of Christ. He says of himself, I have kept my Father's commandments. Nothing short of this obedience will meet the requirements of God's word. He that abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. We cannot plead that we are unable to do this, for we have the assurance, My grace is sufficient for thee. As we look into the divine mirror, the law of God, we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin and our own lost condition as transgressors. But by repentance and faith we are justified before God and through divine grace enabled to render obedience to His commandments. Love for God and man. Those who have genuine love for God will manifest an earnest desire to know His will and to do it. Says the Apostle John, whose epistles treat so fully upon love, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. The child who loves his parents will show that love by willing obedience. 
what the selfish, ungrateful child seeks to do as little as possible for his parents, while at the same time desires to enjoy all the privileges granted to the obedient and faithful. The same difference is seen among those who profess to be children of God. Many who know that they are the objects of his love and care and who desire to receive his blessing take no delight in doing his will. They regard God's claims upon them as an unpleasant restraint, his commandments as a grievous yoke. But he who is truly seeking for holiness of heart and life delights in the law of God and mourns only that he falls so far short of meeting its requirements. We are commanded to love one another as Christ has loved us. He has manifested his love by laying down his life to redeem us. The beloved disciple says that we should be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. For everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. If we love Christ, we shall love those who resemble him in life and character. And not only so, but we shall love those who have no hope and are without God in the world. It was to save sinners that Christ left his home in heaven and came to earth to suffer and to die. For this he toiled and agonized and prayed until heartbroken and deserted by those he came to save. He poured out his life on Calvary. Imitating the pattern, many shrink from such a life as our Savior lived. They feel that it requires too great a sacrifice to imitate the pattern, to bring forth fruit in good works, and then patiently endure the pruning of God that they may bring forth more fruit. But when the Christian regards himself as only a humble instrument in the hands of Christ and endeavors to faithfully perform every duty relying upon the help which God has promised, then he will wear the yoke of Christ and find it easy. Then he will bear burdens for Christ and pronounce them light. He can look up with courage and with confidence and say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. If we meet obstacles in our path and faithfully overcome them, if we encounter opposition and reproach and in Christ's name gain the victory, if we bear responsibilities and discharge our duties in the spirit of our master, then indeed we gain a precious knowledge of his faithfulness and power. We no longer depend upon the experience of others, for we have the witness in ourselves. Like the Samaritans of old, we can say, we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The more we contemplate the character of Christ and the more we experience of his saving power, the more keenly shall we realize our own weakness and imperfection, and the more earnestly shall we look to him as our strength and our redeemer. We have no power in ourselves to cleanse the soul temple from its defilement. But as we repent of our sins against God and seek pardon through the merits of Christ, he will impart that faith which works by love and purifies the heart. By faith in Christ and obedience to the law of God, we may be sanctified and thus obtain a fitness for the society of the holy angels and the white-robed redeemed ones in the kingdom of glory. Union with Christ, our privilege.
It is not only the privilege but the duty of every Christian to maintain a close union with Christ and to have a rich experience in the things of God. Then his life will be fruitful in good works. Said Christ, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. When we read the lives of men who have been eminent for their piety, we often regard their experiences and attainments as far beyond our reach. But this is not the case. Christ died for all, and we are assured in his word that he is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. The prophets and apostles did not perfect Christian character by a miracle. They used the means which God had placed within their reach, and all who will put forth the same effort will secure the same results. Paul's Prayer for the Church In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul sets before them the mystery of the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and then assures them of his earnest prayers for their spiritual prosperity. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. He writes to his Corinthian brethren also, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always in your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These words are addressed not only to the church at Corinth, but to all the people of God to the close of time. Every Christian may enjoy the blessing of sanctification, the apostle continues in these words, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same word and in the same judgment. Paul would not have appealed to them to do that which was impossible. Unity is the sure result of Christian perfection. In the epistle to the Colossians also are set forth the glorious privileges vouchsafed to the children of God. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that she might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. The standard of holiness. The apostle himself was endeavoring to reach the same standard of holiness which he set before his brethren. 
he writes to the Philippians, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There is a striking contrast between the boastful, self-righteous claims of those who profess to be without sin and the modest language of the apostle, yet it was the purity and faithfulness of his own life that gave such power to his exhortations to his brethren. The will of God. Paul did not hesitate to enforce upon every suitable occasion the importance of Bible sanctification. He says, Ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. He bids Titus instruct the church that while they should trust to the merits of Christ for salvation, divine grace dwelling in their hearts will lead to the faithful performance of all the duties of life. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Paul seeks to impress upon our minds the fact that the foundation of all acceptable service to God, as well as the very crown of the Christian graces, is love, and that only in the soul where love reigns will the peace of God abide. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him.